0: Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The Book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do. And how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do When she really puts her mind to it, it also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day.
1: Welcome back. This is the Gospel Feast Series for those who want a little meat after their milk. It's time to feast on the Word. I'm here again with author and historian Reed Simonson. We've been discussing the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel is a wonderful place to start because it pertains to our day. We were talking about Daniel receiving a new vision from the Lord that showed the mighty king of Babylon and eventually him becoming tame like unto a uh, kitty cat. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he was a lion and became a kitty cat. <laughs> uh, a winged lion that had his wings clipped and the heart of a man and became tame and submissive before the Lord.
0: Can you catch us back up? Oh, you bet. This is really fun. Nebuchadnezzar had passed on. And what most people don't know is that the kingdom continued for a time. We're not 100% certain if the next king was literally Nebuchadnezzar's son or his grandson. We think it was his son, but we're not completely certain. His name was King Nabonidus, and he actually didn't like Babylon all that much. He was sort of a suburban kid. He thought that the city was boring, and it was too big, and it just wasn't really all that grand a place to be. Being the most powerful sovereign on the earth since his father had passed, he could live where he wanted. He also had a younger brother named Belshazzar. And Belshazzar liked the city, so they made a deal. Nabonidus would live outside the city and would do what he wanted, and Belshazzar would live inside the city and would run the city, although Belshazzar did bow to Nabonidus because Nabonidus was the king. As it turns out, Nabonidus really loved archaeology, and so he spent his money and time out digging in the dirt to try and find secrets from the past. Nabonidus didn't really care for Marduk all that much. And he didn't really care for Ishtar, that his father had worshiped and thought were important. And of course, we know that Nebuchadnezzar ultimately went to Jehovah. And maybe that's why Nabonidus lost his interest in these gods. That's an interesting thought, I'm not really sure. But he found that he was deeply interested in the sun goddess and the moon god that were part of the religion of that area. And he worshiped them because his mother did. He learned this religion from his mother. And it's very true. The Book of Mormon talks about how boys tend to get their faith from their moms. We see that a lot, that if the mother teaches the children well, the kids are strong, even sometimes more than what the father can do. The mother can have a very strong influence in the home. That's the case here. He loved his mother's gods. And so in his archaeological work, he was trying to find evidence of these gods particularly. And he did out in the valley of Naram-Sin in Haran. He found an ancient temple and we don't even really know who built this temple but it was a temple to the moon god and he was extremely excited about this and spent a lot of money on this archaeological dig the babylonians who worshipped the the moon god saw his symbol to be the crescent moon very much like what the islamic people do the crescent moon that they love when it comes out in the sky and they saw that to be a virile symbol and that as the moon god was trying to impregnate the sun goddess, he would shoot his seed into the sky, and all the stars were his seed trying to reach the sun. That was the basic premise of their religion.
1: We have the two brothers,
0: one ruling
1: but absent in his archaeological endeavors, and the other Being more of the steward regent of the city and of the empire.
0: It was. And this allowed Nabonidus to do that because he could spend all his time trying to discover the secrets of antiquity and his brother could sort of run the government. And his brother liked the civil sort of government side of it. So it worked really well. And they had a deal, too, that any wars that came, Nabonidus would fight in the field with the army and try and keep him away from Babylon. And Belshazzar would fight at the city. And so that was the way they divided up in the goal. Now, the one thing that really annoyed the priests of Babylon is Nabonidus wanted the gods of Babylon to pay homage to the moon god. So what he did is he took the, the idols and the gods of Babylon out of Babylon, and he took them out to Haran, where he'd found this ancient temple to the moon god. And he set him up there to pay homage to the moon god.
1: Okay. So a bunch of statues paying homage to a bunch of other lifeless statues. Well, that's
0: what they were doing. <laughs> okay. Now, why that was a problem is under the Babylonian religion, you couldn't actually practice your religion unless the idol was there.
1: Oh, no. So he'd moved
0: the center of their worship out of the city. He did, and that meant that the priests couldn't really do their rites he didn't really care
1: because... He was attempting to set up a new slash old religion.
0: And maybe this was a slight narcissist thing because he didn't really care. <laughs> in the family. He didn't really care that the people had a concern that the gods were out, you know, standing all around the moon god, and uh, they couldn't really have their worship. So there was some anger in the city because they couldn't really do their religion. But Nabonidus was happy because all the gods were apparently paying homage to his mother's moon god. Okay, (laughs) sort of silly anyway, but that is what was going on. So Daniel around this time had gotten older and was moving into some retirement. He did become the head of the magi in the area, and he was highly revered and loved as a great wise man. That's going to play a very important role later because as the head of the wise men, he started the wise man academy of Babylon. And he was the one that actually told them to wait for the Messiah, for the king of Judah who was coming. That's part of what Isaac Newton was trying to say. But there's much more, and we'll get into it. There's a great deal more to Daniel than that.
1: No, wonderful. I I feel like we've just scratched the surface.
0: On the rise at the time was Cyrus, and he had a father-in-law named Darius. And they were Medo-Persians. And they were beginning to become tired of the Babylonian power. And the Babylonians had brought down Nineveh previously. We didn't talk about that because this is predates Daniel, but the, the world did come around and destroy Assyria, and Babylon is actually the second empire that came on. So some of these remnants are, are remnants of tribes and families that are beginning to assert themselves again, and they've had it with Nebuchadnezzar, and they were, had had it with Belshazzar and, and Nabonidus, and they did start attacking them. Every time they tried to attack Babylon, Belshazzar held them off, And every time they attacked out in the field, Nabonidus would leave his virile moon god and go and help save the day on the field. It was working. In one particular case, Belshazzar had won a particularly important battle against Cyrus. And he realized something. His father had warned him about this image that had been Nebuchadnezzar's dream.
1: So Nebuchadnezzar had shared, at least with his heirs, what he had learned from Daniel.
0: You bet. And he had been converted. And he knew there was going to be nobody greater than him after him. And he was trying to warn his family to be good and to follow Daniel and to listen to Jehovah. He tried. Of course, like we discovered, Nabonidus was more interested in the virile moon god. So that didn't play so well. Belshazzar had just beat Cyrus, who had tried to attack near the city. And he reasoned that his father and his father's God and Daniel and Daniel's God had lied or they were wrong. Oh, this new empire wasn't going to topple him. That's what he thought. Now it makes sense what happens next. If you know that, it makes sense. Otherwise, it doesn't. As you read the Bible, it's missing something. You go, there's something missing here. Well, that's what it was. He had just won this battle. And so he gathered a 1,000 of the noblemen. And he said, we are going to have a party because we have proved that our God is the greatest and we are not going to fall. So what did he do? He had this big feast planned. He ordered that the temple bowls and glasses and all the serviceware and all the things that belonged to Jehovah that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple mm. be brought and have a feast and a party to prove that Jehovah had lost He was setting up a feast of mockery. It was. That's exactly what happened. That's the part that the Bible doesn't mention, but that is in the histories. So he's doing this. He brings out these sacred bowls and goblets and all these things that had been in the temple. Gold and silver Solomon had made, and they were glorious, beautiful. And he's having a debauchery party with these in the palace with a 1,000 of his elites. And all of a sudden, he sees a hand, disembodied hand, come and write words on the wall. And the words were, many, many, takiel, you Now, what's so fun about this? The King James says what happened next when Belshazzar saw this. But one thing you should know about the King James. The King James was written to be read aloud, and it was written to be read in church, And when the great scholars, and we actually think Shakespeare was part of this, but we'll save that for another time. We
1: definitely want to touch on that.
0: Well, we have evidence, actually, that he actually worked on the Bible. We actually do have it now, and so it's possible. But anyway, the great scholars that we know who were preparing this for King James, they were worried because Hebrew can be really blunt we talked about Eastern thinking being very sensual. And so they were alarmed that a perfect translation would be a little difficult to read in church.
1: Uh, Was it too graphic, uh, explicit, descriptive, or just... Yes, there are parts of Hebrew that just tell it like it is. Okay, so in the interest of civility, was the Bible... In a sense
0: whitewashed? Well, it was certainly being softened so that it's censored. S- the Bible was censored. Well, it's still it's still in there, yeah. but you have to read between the lines yeah, to interpret. And, and really know that the priests standing up there with the beautiful altar. These are beautiful cathedrals in Europe, you know, and Queen Elizabeth and James. And they didn't want the common folk sitting in the cheap nosebleed seats in the cathedral snickering when the, you know so they soften some stuff so let me give it to you in an english translation from the hebrew okay daniel 5 six. so do we
1: need an explicit
0: warning on this well you tell me afterwards so this is one of those posts afterwards plug the kids' ears and then decide if you should have plugged the kids ears daniel 5 6 in its english via the hebrew reads this way Then the blood drained from the king's face as terror seized him. He was so afraid that his bladder opened in front of his guests, and he peed all over himself while his knees knocked violently together.
1: Ah, so he was terrified. He was terrified. And this was a perfect description
0: of absolute terror. Well, why this is so fun is because you have to realize that the Jews reading this, who had been through so many struggles, really enjoyed, this is a little bit of vengeance you know that Uh, you've got this powerful king who's just a pain in the
1: butt he's pagan and he's horrible uh, well and jehovah had brought them low for their sins and now he was going to bring someone else low for their mockery
0: well and isn't this a little like nebuchadnezzar being turned into a naked sasquatch Uh, beast out in the field you know i would say yes you've got this grand king having this horrible orgy feast using the temple instruments to do it The Jews rather enjoyed the fact that when Belshazzar saw the real power, he couldn't control his bladder and sitting up there in front of everybody peed all over the place. Good old Hebrew, huh? Well, moving on. (laughs) Unplug the ears. Okay, that's true. Okay, So Belshazzar screamed for the wise men because that's what you do when you're a king and you don't know what's going on. You call the wise men. They brought in the wise men and he said, anybody who can figure this out will become the third highest in the kingdom. And that's interesting. He says that. And you go, well, gosh, why not the second highest in the kingdom? Because he himself was second. There you go. The Bible actually does fit with this tradition that he had an older brother. That's right. So it's number three in the kingdom. Nobody knew what to do. Well, as it turns out, the queen mother, and we don't know who this is, I would lean to the fact that maybe this is Ramsay's daughter. We talked about
1: the prized wife. Uh, of nebuchadnezzar he brought out of egypt
0: nebuchadnezzar loved her i don't know that she was the mother necessarily of Nabonidus. either way the queen was called and she was an elder queen so i don't believe that she was belshazzar's wife
1: okay she knew daniel because she'd been there through all the trials and a conversion of nebuchadnezzar as well
0: yes and she said you've got to get daniel he's the only one that's going to be able to figure this out so they do call for Daniel and he comes out of retirement and he comes into the hall. And he looks up at the words. And the first thing he says to the king is, I can read these and I can explain this to you, but I don't wanna be third in the kingdom. Okay, that's a bit He'd of a He's been offered again. first in the kingdom, so third is quite the demotion at this point. Oh, that's funny, true, I hadn't thought of that. But again, Daniel's really just not interested in this type of stuff, that's not who he was. So he went ahead and he explained it. And he does say in the scriptures, to Belshazzar, he reminds him first that his father was converted, and his father had made proclamations about the truth, and that he says to Belshazzar, you knew all of this, and yet you didn't follow your father. Very interesting. And then he goes on to say that the words mene mene means God has counted your kingdom, and its time is up.
1: Mm.
0: And then that tekiel, you are weighed on the scales and found empty, and that Eupharsin meant your kingdom has been given to the Medio persians
1: So standing there, surrounded by his nobles, his wealth, and his peed-on pants, he was
0: brought down. He was, and he saw the hand of God do this, so he's very concerned. Well, what he didn't know, and what nobody knew that was having this party, is that that very night Cyrus of Persia And his trusted general, who we think was his father-in-law, Darius the Mede, had figured something brilliant out. There was one design flaw with Babylon.
1: Fifty-six miles of walls that are 300 feet high, 80 feet thick, I don't see how there could possibly
0: be a flaw. That's what Nebuchadnezzar thought, that this was not possible to attack or bring down the city. He was convinced, and everybody who tried had failed. One design flaw. In order to make sure that water came into the city, even during a siege... They had built the city so that the Euphrates passed through it. And even in the siege, if you have to end up eating your dog and your shoe, at least if you've got some water. We still have water. You know, you're okay. And, and Nebuchadnezzar figured this mighty river runs right through the middle of the city. There's no way they're gonna get us. They're never gonna take away all of our sandals and shoes and possibly our slaves if we have to, you know, make slaves stew. we're gonna be okay. This is what Cyrus realized. If he could get the river lowered, There was a big hole under the wall. Oh,
1: so if he could dam up the Euphrates. Yes.
0: That's a big deal, I know. It's a lot of work. But he did. He and Darius went up a little ways and they diverted it. So as this party is going on, the river's getting lower and lower. At nighttime, with the debauchery and the panic
1: over the hand of God appearing and writing, Your time has come on the wall, nobody was
0: really paying attention to the river's level. No, they weren't. And so the water's going down, Cyrus and the entire Medo-Persian army goes under the wall into the river bank and is in the city and just walks right in. They walk right in. When the news comes to the palace during their party that the Persians have entered the city, the nobles stand up, take their sword, and they slit Belshazzar's throat. Oh wow, so they, at that moment. I think they were all serious. If the army had been watching on the walls, and if nabonidus had been alerted they could have stopped this but instead you know we're impregnable we are having and a party they never,
1: never had to prepare to defend themselves on the interior
0: of their that's walls. true that's true they did think it was impossible to bring down babylon they did and they were upset so they killed him who's third command in the kingdom Uh, Well, Daniel
1: at that moment, even though he'd supposedly (laughs) turned it down,
0: Daniel the next morning found himself as third in command of the kingdom. So that's wonderful because Cyrus shows up and says, we need to do a surrender. Who's in charge? Well, Daniel's in charge. So this is a wonderful thing. Almost nobody knows, but this is my favorite part of this story. Daniel actually had in his possession a letter that had been written by Isaiah about 200 years earlier. That was a letter to Cyrus. So
1: I assume that this had been handed down and kept with instructions that it was to be given to a certain person at a certain time, because how do you deliver a letter to a person that isn't born? How do, you, how do you give instructions to pass on a letter to someone that hasn't even been born?
0: Well, that's an interesting point. I don't know the specifics of this, except that Isaiah was also a member of the royal family. So he was related to Daniel. He could have been a great, great, great uncle or something. And Daniel had the records, and Daniel knew the scriptures, and he had read the writings, and Isaiah was well-loved even then. So he had this, and he knew it. Whether or not he realized until this moment its purpose, I don't know. It doesn't say. But we do have it preserved for us. Actually, Isaiah 44 and 45 in the book of Isaiah in our Bible. It is the letter. It's the letter. So let's read it. Absolutely. I've got it here in front of me, and we can actually read. Let's truncate it just a bit, but uh, you can read the whole thing anytime you want.
1: Say it again. What, what was the scripture?
0: Isaiah 44 and 45. Okay, good. Let's read along. Listen to your Lord and Redeemer, your God who made all things. I am he who exposes the soothsayers, who catches them in their lies and proves them to be fools, while foretelling my secrets to my prophets. There's Amos. It is I who foretell that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and again filled with the children of Judah. Now, watch this brilliance, because Cyrus didn't know anything about this letter. He had just barely conquered the city probably five, six, maybe no more than eight hours earlier. Here's this ancient old scroll. It's obviously old. It is I who dry up the mighty rivers. Oh, wow. Wow. And say to Cyrus. By name. By name. He is my shepherd. He will listen to me and command Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He will say to my people, go rebuild my temple. I say to Cyrus. You are my anointed one. Anointed means Messiah in in Hebrew. So he's calling him a Messiah. It is I who hold your right hand. Before you I will cause kings to piss themselves in terror. So I'm
1: guessing you translated that back from the King James version. It is of in politeness. There. It
0: is polite, but it is in there. It does say it. And certainly again this is Hebrew, so we can pull this out of the Hebrew. It was known when Belshazzar, who had conquered Cyrus a few times out before, found out he'd gotten in and had beat all over himself in a dinner, that the was spread. The news spread. That was made fun of right before he'd down. been assassinated. You can imagine. It keeps going. I will open their walled cities. I will go before you, lowering the mountains, smashing the gates, and cutting down the defenses. I will give you the secret treasures of men. Then you will know that I am God, the Lord of Israel. I am he who calls you by your name. It is I who have girded you for battle, even though you did not know me. All the world will yet know that I am God, and there is no other. I am your creator. This is really powerful
1: stuff. So just like Nebuchadnezzar, who had been converted but had been used as a tool to spread the knowledge of Jehovah back to the world. You got it. He was going to again use Cyrus for that purpose.
0: You got it. This is his proof to the world and all the Mahanists and all the Luciferians and even all the broken houses that God of Israel, Jehovah, was in charge. They only ruled because he said, I'm going to let you rule for a time. And it goes on. Would you dare to question what I choose to do for Israel? I will raise you up, Cyrus, to fulfill my righteousness and I will guide you. You will restore my city and free my people without seeking any reward for doing so. It is I, the Lord, who command it. I will give you power to rule over Egypt, Ethiopia, the Sabians, and the men of power. All they have will be yours. They will fall before you like slaves in chains and cry, God is with you, Cyrus, and there is no other god but he. I will confound those who worship pieces of wood and stone and call them gods. I have not spoken in secret. Those who trust in me will find me. I, the Lord, speak
1: the truth. Wow. And do we have Cyrus's reaction when he got this letter?
0: He was blown away. And of course, he needed someone to help him rule Babylon. So who do you suppose he picked? Uh, Probably the sensible man that handed him the letter. Daniel. And it is true that under Cyrus's decree, Jerusalem was going again begin to be rebuilt. It took a little time, but he was deeply impressed by this. And he did prepare the way for the Jews to return out of Babylon back into Jerusalem. So he did everything that the Lord asked him to do here. We also, as the story goes, we start to bump into Darius more. And so at some point, Cyrus must have left Babylon to go and work out of his capital and he may have left darius as his great general and we believe his father-in-law to sort of be the governor of babylon we're not entirely sure but the bible's going to start to talk about daniel and darius more and it's almost like what happened to cyrus Mm. and yet we know cyrus did write some decrees on behalf of the jews to help them get jerusalem back up on its feet
1: so we're running a little short on time you've told us about this amazing prophetic letter from isaiah That makes me think something really profound, Reed. And we touched on this at the beginning, that the scriptures are timeless, though they come in chronological order often, and they're often viewed as a story that is accompanied by important parables or important moments and visions, or even direct words from the Lord. But they are, in fact, still timeless. So here, revealed in the book of Daniel, shows the timelessness of the scriptures that the father knows the beginning from the end that he's revealed it to his servants that his beloved son will come and aid the servants of the lord when they need him that he will always reveal what he's about to do to his prophets he will never surprise his prophet he will never surprise his people he will give them a chance he will give them a warning if that was true to isaiah to amos to daniel certainly then it must be true to us too. We thank you all for listening. We'd like to remind you that the gospel is free to everyone. We have not been reviewed by any denomination. This is our understanding of the gospel. And we invite you to come feast with us. Until our next podcast, may the Lord Jesus Christ be with you.